We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and not sure this is a great idea. Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. Uh, As always, I'm your host, Will, and in this episode, we are taking a look at the Labour leadership race. So today I'm joined by a, uh, not quite a panel, uh, but a group of experts in their particular field to discuss the Labour Party, the Labour leadership race and what the future might hold. I'm joined by George Aylett, who is a former campaigner and activist for the Labour Party. Welcome to, back to the podcast, George. Hello there. How are you doing? Uh, great. Um, I'm also joined by Emma Burnell, who is a journalist and co-host of the Zeitgeist Tapes podcast and the House of Comments podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. Oh, well, many, many podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> many, many podcasts. And uh, last but certainly not least, I'm delighted to be joined by Sean uh, Woodcock, who is a Labour and Cooperative Party councillor for Banbury Ruscote, and he's leader of the opposition and leader of the Labour group on Banbury Town Council. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Um, so, to begin with, uh, I'd like to ask all of you, uh, why do you think that this leadership race is happening at all? In other words, why do you think Labour lost the last election? To begin with, I'd like to get Emma's, uh, Emma's response to that question. I think it's a combination of factors. Um I mean, if you look at the polling, the leading reason was that Jeremy Corbyn was just massively disliked by the country. He wasn't trusted with the economy. He wasn't trusted with security. And I think some significant things shifted between 2017 and 2019 to make that much bigger a factor. In 2017, people were kind of willing to overlook that in order to give the Tories a kicking. They weren't in 2019. Um, I think that We lost votes from both directions on our Brexit prevarication. Um, We lost some Remain votes that we had been lent in 2017, um, and they were just, well, you've just been too wet, too nowhere. We lost from Leave votes because we'd moved into a Remain position. Um, We lost because the manifesto, while each individual policy may have been individually popular, was too much of an insane smorgasbord of everything and it just felt like being thrown at a psychedelic wall um, for voters. Uh, it, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't coherent. So I think those are the key factors that just meant that we weren't, um, and we weren't a fighting force. You know, we didn't have a, a decent singular campaign message. We weren't putting our resources in the right place. Our organisation was all over the place. So yeah, there just there was just no factor that was working for us by the time we got to that election. George, what uh, what are your thoughts in regards to why the party lost? I mean, there are many many reasons why uh, Labour lost the twenty nineteen general election. Oh, um, I'm actually doing my PhD thesis on the rise and fall of Jeremy Corbyn, and it will look on the 2019 general election, so I'm going to look into that in great t- detail, but the working assumptions I have so far is that the Brexit position did play a huge role in this general election. Boris Johnson ran on the platform of Get Brexit Done, whilst the Labour position for a very long time was a soft Brexit, then it became a second referendum, and it was on the fence for a bit. And the perception of Jeremy Corbyn changed from 2017 to 2019. And there was a poll published that showed the main reasons why perception of Jeremy Corbyn changed from positive to negative. 43% of that was because of Brexit. And the second highest reason why people changed their mind from Jeremy Corbyn was indecisiveness. Now, he hasn't been indecisive on public ownership, on tuition fees, on a living wage. It was Brexit. This Brexit issue just engulfed the Labour Party for a few years and it damaged the leadership and it damaged the party as a whole. And I think I don't think we would trusted 
on the biggest issue facing the country, and Boris Johnson was. And what we need to do now is rebuild and come up with a coherent plan for post-Brexit Britain. And it should be very interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks with the Labour leadership contest. Um, Sean, what's your response to the question? And what do you think of uh, Emma and George's uh, explanation for the loss? I mean, I think they're both right. Um, I think certainly Brexit was an issue. You'd be silly not to think it had a part in it. Certainly Corbyn um, and organisation um, of the party um, and the manifesto itself. But I, I actually think it's much, much more simple than all of those things. We simply gave people too many reasons not to vote for us. Um, I knocked on a lot of doors, um, both prior to the election... Um, as in my role as a councillor, um, and uh, during the election campaign. And it was quite clear that you were knocking on the doors of people who are Labour voters, and they were struggling to find a reason to vote for us, whether it was anti-Semitism, whether they didn't like the leader, whether it was Brexit from both sides, as Emma has said, or, or whether it was some other reason to do with how we looked as a party in terms of disunity or um, how things were playing out in Parliament, people looked at us and just even our own supporters, apart from the fact that they had always been Labour or they didn't like the Conservatives, they didn't want to vote for us. And it's, it was as simple as that, really. Um, now, George mentioned in uh, his response, and I think this was something that you all touched upon, is that it was seen that the Labour Party didn't have the right answers to Brexit or at least was perceived not to have, you know, the solution that would honour uh, the referendum vote. Now that we have seen Brexit not pass, com pass completely out of the picture, but certainly um, pass to the sidelines for the moment, do you think that the 2016 vote is going to continue to affect the Labour Party's performance, or... Do you think that it's just gone, yeah. it's over now, uh, people are going to move on and not judge the party no. on its positions after that? Sean, what do you think? No, I, I mean, I think what, uh, just like the independence referendum in Scotland, I think what the EU referendum has done is opened up large um, chasms that were already present in British society about whether we have an open... Uh, inclusive sort of society or a more um, closed, maybe not quite isolationist, but certainly very, um, you know, committed more to the idea of looking after ourselves first and then rather than opening ourselves up to the wider world. And I think that that's, that's what, what took place in 2016. I don't think we're necessarily going to easily be able to close those fissures. And uh, I think Labour's got a, a very long way back uh, if it wants to make itself relevant in a, a world post-2016. Um, and certainly in Scotland, I think it's got even further to go with regards to the independence referendum and how it responds to that. So there are these deeply entrenched uh, barricades that Labour has to overcome regarding the 2016 vote, or do you think that it's in the background, people aren't going to be concerned with Labour's position on the referendum going forward? I think that the referendum was in some ways a symptom as much as anything else of the fact that we have been totally divided true. as a nation yeah. for quite a long time into these two different tribes. We've now just put names on those tribes. And what we've done is a thing that we didn't really talk about in a very British way has become the singular thing that now defines all of us. You are a Lever or you're a Remainer. And while people aren't necessarily as passionate as those of us who've spent, you know, years and years really fighting on these grounds, people do have a binary sense of themselves now. And you are one tribe or the other. Um, and I think that's something that has been an undercurrent in British society for a really long time, not necessarily around Europe. Um, sometimes this is about towns and cities, um, rural versus urban, um, open versus closed, all these different labels that we've put on it. But what we've done is absolutely solidify that 
in the UK. Now, in Scotland, there's the additional, um, you know, yes versus no. But there are, these are really firmly entrenched identities now. So the Brexit will go one way or the other. And we'll all have a view on how that's going to go. But I don't think that how that does or doesn't go is going to change those entrenched identities. So all that 2016 did was just make the fissure in our society that was a crap a chasm. And how you mend that is going to be a different question as to what our economic relationship should be and social relationship should be with Europe. George, I'd like you to come in on that. What, what, what do you think about whether we will be able to vault over these these fissures? Do, do you think that this is something that is deeply ingrained, or what are your thoughts on that? I think the issue of whether or not we leave, I mean, that is over. That is done now, which is, you know, a bit yeah, of relief, okay. I think, for the whole country, which is quite positive. However, people still remember important political moments. I mean, even once or twice, I still hear Gordon Brown selling off the gold mentioned on the doorsteps, Lib Dems and tuition fees, that's still, you know, ingrained with them. And people will remember where politicians stood on the European question. And, you know, the issue of our relationship with the European Union is not over. We've got the transition period, we've got negotiations, we have the possibility of no deal. And, you know, all of these things, it's just a shame that it is in the hands of the Conservative Party to have this in the future because, you know, I mean, hindsight is a, a wonderful thing, but if Labour took a, a better position on Brexit and actually respected the referendum result this time, I think potentially we could have done a lot better. You know, UKIP won the 2014 European elections. The Conservatives won the 2015 election on a platform to have a referendum. The 2016 Leave won. 2017, 83% of parties voted for uh, parties that would respect the referendum result. And the Brexit party won the European elections in 2019 and the Conservatives have just won a big thumping landslide in 2019 with a pledge to get Brexit done. I just wish we would have stuck with a soft Brexit position and have the will in Parliament to have a customs union Brexit. And just remember, we were only three or four votes away from achieving that. We could have left in March 2019 a compromised Brexit deal. It would have been done by then. It would have been out of the hands of the Conservatives and we would have had a position which could have unified the 48% of people who voted remain, 52% who voted leave. But I feel the constant delays just bitterly entrenched the country further between remain and leave, and that's going to be hard to shake off, even uh, if the question of whether or not we leave is over by now. Now, one of the things that has continually um, come up in your responses is this sense of entrenchment, is the divide across the country. Do you think that Labour's route back to power is going to be through appealing solely to the towns and the areas that uh, were rejected by it? Or do you think that it can continue to have a balance between balancing some of the areas that supported it at the 2019 election and those that didn't? Where should the focus lie? Uh, Emma, if you could uh, kick off with that one. Sure. Um, I think there's a real tension between the two narratives that we've got about Labour at the moment, or about politics in general, one of which is Labour has to stop being so metropolitan and start appealing to these heartland people it left behind, and secondly, that Labour and, and politicians more general need to be authentic. Now, I can't pretend to be anything other than a metropolitan liberal. I'm not going to suddenly start being racist, sexist or homophobic. And also, I'm going to respect people enough to assume that if I did pretend to be, they would think I was an absolute nutter and they wouldn't believe me. And secondly, that most people don't want those prejudices actually pandered to. They just want to be listened to when they say things aren't quite right here. I've got some concerns. I think we need to find the difference between Labour's liberal instincts, which are good, and Labour's 
approach to those instincts, which can be hectoring and nasty and vicious and mean. And there's got to be a way of being positive about those liberal instincts that lets people who share some of them, because everybody shares some of them. It, you know, it's a very small minority that don't share any of them and they ain't voting Labour anytime soon. And also making feel like we're not lecturing them constantly about how different they must behave. And that's where I think Labour needs to come back to itself, not in pandering, but in listening. And you've got to understand the difference between those two things. And you've got to understand why it isn't the same to say, I believe that these rights are really important and saying you are a really nasty evil person if you don't 100% sign up to this agenda. Uh, Sean what do you um, think of that how do you think that Labour can achieve uh, the balancing act should it achieve a balancing act should it focus more on, on the towns what do you think? Well as someone from a town I'm not inclined to xenophobia or bigotry either and I think we need to be very clear that um, in many ways that's that's a caricature uh, absolutely no I, I mean I may have phrased that lightly, so I apologize if that's no no no, that. no 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 I wasn't taking it as that Emma don't worry um I, I mean I, the way back is very very long and I think what we need to really start doing is accept where we are and where we've come from as in 2017 was an outlier Labour has been losing since 2001. Now, that is, to Jeremy Corbyn's credit, doing well in 2017, but it is also his failure that he failed to address that decline, which predates him. Um, so, we, while we won in 2005, which is not unimportant, by the way, we continued to govern, we did so with declining support because the Conservative Party was still in a mess and because people were still doing OK in the economy. Once the crash happened... People lost their reasons for continuing to support us because we lost our economic credibility. I think if we start from that basis, we can then start to put together a coalition of people to support us by actually listening to people, not pandering, but listening to people uh, as to what sort of society they want. And, and I would urge people to have a look at the report by Europe for the Many um, that came out in the wake of the defeat by... Christabel Cooper and Luke Cooper, mm. um, which made it very clear that actually, you know, our support support is is, the, is still there among working class people. It's just there among working class people in different places. So in the large cities in London, for example, or Manchester, um, where there are still high levels of poverty, we still maintained a high level of support. What where we lost it is in those Brexit voting towns in middle and north of England, where maybe house prices in particular um, are stagnant and low, um, but where people don't feel that they have much opportunity in terms of you know, what's in and around them. Um, and so we need, but where maybe there may be more, are more socially conservative than they are in so those metropolitan areas. I would urge people to look at that. But I think we really need to, if we're going to learn from this defeat, rather than frog march our way to another one, because we shouldn't pretend that um, this, this prior to this defeat, prior to Jeremy Corbyn, prior to Brexit, everything was going swimmingly with Labour. You know, we've been losing for a long time. 2010, 2015, all pre-Brexit, all pre-Corbyn, bad results for Labour. So this has long been coming. And I think any analysis um, as to where we go from here has to accept that. And that starts with accepting, again, that 2017 was, in many ways, the freak result of the sequence. And that the left and the centre-left, you know, the Liberal Democrats are also having a bad time at the moment, is struggling. And we need to find um, our, new pl our place in the world post-crash. Uh, now, George, I'd like you to come in. What, what's your response to what Emma and Sean have said? Do you think that it continue on a can have a balancing act, or the focus should shift? What are your thoughts? 
I think it's really interesting, you know, there has been a long-term decline, not just of the left in Britain, but all across the Western world as well. We're seeing centre-left and left-wing parties all across the the Western world in in long-term decline. And um, there is no easy fix to that. There is no easy fix. You know, Sean mentioned the Labour lost credibility after the global financial crisis, and he's right. And we're overdue a recession here in the United Kingdom. But even if there is a recession that is not going to guarantee that the Tories are going to lose the next election because the Conservatives managed to get a narrative, the Labour, you know, Labour overspending with the credit card. It's not that easy to form a narrative when it comes to, you know, calamitous mistakes and whatever uh, global situation is messing up the uh, situation in the United Kingdom. So what we need to do is have a good narrative. And what we need to do is win a broad coalition of voters by winning over hearts and minds, rebuilding trust and actually having a positive and optimistic vision because we need a vision that actually inspires people you know harold wilson he had that vision of the white heat of technology and that inspired a generation of people he won four elections and i think that's what we need again we need a white heat of technology moment and no doubt we'll talk about the the current Labour leadership contest very soon, but I'm really excited by the idea of Rebecca Longbaby putting a green industrial revolution right at the heart of a plan, because I think that in itself could be our white heat technology moment. And I'd like to see all Labour leadership candidates have that one thing that could inspire a generation of people. And I'm glad Rebecca Longbaby is actually offering something which is really good. Um, now, as you just mentioned, moving on to the actual contest itself... Uh, at the moment, uh, we're recording this on the uh, the 13th, uh, there are four candidates uh, for the leadership. That may go down to three by tomorrow. Um, I'd just like to hear from each of you, what are your assessments of the four current candidates? Sean, if you could start. Well, I should probably declare an interest in that I'm supporting openly uh, Lisa Nandy in the contest. Um, and, and my reason for doing that is part, partly because I've been admiring her work on towns in, in the, the leaving, leave voting areas that um, were raised earlier. And, and I think in many ways she's recognised many of the issues prior to the defeat that we suffered in December. Um, I but also, I, I'm, what I want to hear from, what I've wanted to hear from the candidates, and I didn't declare at the start, I wanted to give every candidate, including, including Rebecca Long-Bailey um, and Keir Starmer, all an opportunity to set out their pitches. What I wanted was to know the, that they understand the scale of the challenge that we face, and they understand how far behind we are and how much work we have to do. And I think that from what I've seen, Lisa Nandy is the candidate who most understands that. What do you feel about the um, the other candidates? What strengths do you think that they have? What weaknesses in comparison to, to Lisa Nandy? I mean, just going from, um, um, if we start with Rebecca Long-Bailey, I, I, my, my concern is that um, it will be couched in let's have Corbynism with a bit of leave um, thrown in, and that will do. And I think that that's far too simplistic and it doesn't address the fact that I think we're dealing with some really structural issues for the Labour Party. Um, Hence why I keep referring back to we've not been doing very well for a long time, and I don't just attribute that to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, But I think just put into the electorate, we're going to be a little bit, fly the union flag a little bit more, uh, be a little bit... uh, more levy, but continue with the same economic promises we made last time, and you will vote for us, won't you? I don't buy it. I do like the Green New Deal that she's put forward. I think that's a really positive thing, though I do wonder how much impact and resonance it would have in a lot of working-class communities that we lost. Um, Keir Starmer, my concern again would be, um, while I think he's a very effective and credible candidate to be Prime Minister, my concern would be Again, it's much of a muchness in terms of policy that we're offering, but being a bit more Romanian and, and openly liberal. Um, and so that concerns me in that I, I'm not sure that will work either. Um, Emily Formby, it'll be interesting to see if she gets on the ballot paper. But what I do like about her in, 
what I've seen so far, is I do think she recognises the scale of the challenge, which I think, for me, is the first thing that any potential leader needs to do now, is to realise that we're actually in a bit in a bit of a hole and that there's quite a lot of work to do. What I'm not yet sure about is what her actual solutions for it are. Um, George, what's your assessment of the uh, the four leadership candidates? I mean, I know that you've got a, a preferred candidate, but what do you think of all four of them? That's a very good question. So I think that the Labour Party, what we need to do after the 2019 result, which was heartbreaking for all of us, for all, you know, Emma and Sean and I, you know, we were absolutely heartbroken by that result. And what we need to do now is look at what do we need to do to win next time. And I think our path to power genuinely is not to change the message itself, but the way we communicate that message. Because our policies no. on public ownership of essential services, scrapping tuition fees, a living wage, and giving more power to communities are policies that can really appeal to people. Because what I think we need to do is not throw those values away, but by actually standing up for what we believe in, that's how we can win over the public. And we actually have a candidate right now in Rebecca Long-Bailey that ticks every single box that Labour needs in a leader. We need somebody who's neither a hard leaver or hard remainer, a fiery, detail-oriented, working-class socialist woman from outside of London. This is the person that the Labour Party have needed for a very, very long time. And I think... She's not only just talking the talk, she'll walk the walk as well. That's because when it comes to the policy, she not only believes in the policies, but she helped write the policies and some policies in the manifesto, such as uh, the Green Industrial Revolution. And that's why she's my preferred candidate. And you asked my opinion on... There were policies rejected by the electorate. My opinion on all of the candidates. So when it comes to... Keir Starmer, I think he's a very nice guy. I met him in Leeds. He's absolutely very lovely. Um, I do think that we might be relying too much on the self-fulfilling prophecy of if you just call him electable, then he'll become electable. I don't think that's a strategy that will work long term. And, you know, like we said earlier, the, the positions between Remain and Leave are still entrenched in society. And a hard Remainer as Lady Leader, that will be noticed by a lot of people in, in the Red Wall areas. Uh, when it comes to Lisa Nandy, I like what she says about, about towns. I think the memes are pretty strong. But the thing I worry about Lisa Nandy is I don't think she will defend the policies even if they are right. So, I mean, the Newsnight debate yesterday, she was talking about, you know, we can't just go around as a party promising to get rid of tuition fees. And then five minutes later, she puts her hands up to say she wants to get rid of tuition fees. I don't understand that. I mean, we need a good communicator with the public and... I don't think that's really that good. Emily Thornbury, I think she's okay, but I don't think she'll get on the ballot. So I think for the reasons I said earlier, I think Rebecca Long-Bailey is the, the, the candidate that I'll be backing and I think she'll be doing an extremely good job if she's elected as Labour leader. Um, I'd just like to um, hear what Emma has to say about uh, the candidates and then we'll just go back to something that um, Sean uh, was trying to say when uh, George was speaking. Uh, Emma, what's your assessment of the four leadership candidates as they stand at the moment? I don't have a favourite at the moment. Um, I know who I probably won't be voting for, um, but I haven't decided who's going to get my first preference. I'm going to sit and listen I think they all have strengths and weaknesses, to be honest. Um, none of them are the perfect candidates. Yes, um, I, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a perfect candidate, but... Um, True. Uh, so what I try to do, and I've, you know, I've been making a conscious effort to step back dispassionately and act as a journalist rather than as a cheerleader. And it's really weird when you do that to look at your, all your mates on Twitter and Facebook and what have you, and think, God, that was me two years ago. I was like, oh, rare, 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 this person's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And you think, but you don't believe that. You know you know what their faults are. You know exactly where their weaknesses lie. And actually, you'd be a better supporter if you were more open and honest about that so that they could actually fix it. And yeah. um, so I think that's a really, like, a, a difficult... It's a weird transition to have made, and I'm not sure I could ever go back to the other side of the looking glass. You know, maybe I can. Maybe there'll be somebody that comes along one day who I'll just be cock-a-hoop for. Um, 
but I feel better with the way I am now. Um, in terms of the different candidates, I think um, each of them has something to offer. I think Lisa's analysis is superb uh, of where we've gone wrong. Um, I think she is doing the harder job of trying to challenge the party in some areas um, and of saying, you know, guys, you can't mess up this badly and then just go, oh, well, it's, it's all right, really. You know, well, it's just all we need is a few sort of cosmetic changes. Yeah. So I think that's a real strength Absolutely. that we brought to the debate. Absolutely. Um, I don't necessarily see that as then having transitioned to and these are the things I would change and I think that the the example that George brought up about tuition fees was you know perfectly exemplified that um I think Keir Starmer is electable in that kind of generic white guy in a gray suit kind of a way um I think he's playing a very cautious game in this contest he's the front runner he's not doing anything to put that in jeopardy you know he's walking that sort of ming vase down a shiny corridor type way which i totally get as the front runner but isn't really dynamic enough to make the changes to the party that are needed yeah um i think rebecca long bailey has some interesting policy positions i think she's to the corbyn project i I don't think she would make the internal changes that are needed to change the party in the deep and meaningful way that it needs to change to get to become electable again. Because a lot of what went wrong went wrong, yes, over 20 years, but also accelerated deeply under the misorganisation of the last four to five years. Um, Absolutely, and yeah. That really, it, it, and I don't see that changing under Rebecca. Emily, I'm not sure she gets on the ballot. She's a brilliant media performer. Um, but I think that she is really tainted, fairly or unfairly, with that posh metropolitan label. And I also, I yeah. just think that given what we've been talking about and what the narrative about the Red Wall and all of that that's come out of this election, you cannot transfer the leadership from Islington North to Islington South. Oh, I just want to bring up something that I think you were trying to say um earlier when George was uh, speaking, Sean, which was about the failure of the manifesto. I think that's what you were going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would like to put this to, to George. If Rebecca Long-Bailey is the continuity Corbyn candidate, for lack of a better term, is it the right thing to double down on the same policies and just continue with a, a, a broadly similar economic uh, position that was in the manifesto that had just been quite sharply rejected. George, what, what do you think of that? What should change is the way we communicate the message rather than the message itself, because that platform genuinely would have changed the lives of millions of people for the better. And you don't just sacrifice all your values away because of one bad election result. We need to understand where we went wrong but I think what needs to change, like I said earlier, it's the narrative it's, rather it's than... It's four bad election results. Yeah. We've I think that's elections. really important. Well done. Do you, do you mind? Um, we'll have a rebuttal, of course. But what needs to change, because our policies, like I said earlier, on public ownership of essential services, scrapping tuition fees, a living wage, giving power to the communities, all of these policies remain popular. What needs to change is the narrative and the way we sell our message to the public. We shouldn't be, we should not be backtracking on this manifesto. We should be building on it. I'd just like to interject here, George, if, if I can. Um, um, Sean, you were saying that it's four election yeah. losses. So yeah. do you think then that, I mean, this is uh, the things that we've seen in this manifesto in this sort of like the economic proposals have been, and, and the type of Corbynism we've seen have been more in the last two manifestos, really. Do you think yeah. that, therefore, you can say that, oh, well, this is something that we can blame for the four defeats, or do you think that there's a, a dividing line between 2010 to 2015 and then 2017 to 20, uh, 2015 to 2019, or do you think that there are, there are problems that are common to both? 
No, I think there's two separate periods, really. I mean, I think, I think 2010 was the inevitable result of a financial crash. I think we'd been in government for 13 years, um, and people didn't feel that uh, the economy was in safe hands, rightly or wrongly. I believe wrongly they felt that, given the job that Gordon Brown did. But that's how they felt, and I think that result was inevitable in many ways. 2015 is an example of um, where we tried to be all things to all people. We tried to be nice and cuddly on welfare and benefits by getting rid of bedroom tax, but also um, not doing anything about, say, the benefit cap and um, maintaining... Le- le- current levels of spending. And so I think that's where Co- Corbynism got in, and Corbyn was right in that. You, and I, I agree with George in this way that, yes, we should stand up for our values, absolutely. But one thing I think that we've got wrong in the last two elections is that we've forgotten the key thing that nothing is ever free, really, apart from fresh air. And most people know this. Um, free, free tuition isn't free tuition. It's paid for out of general taxation, and most voters realise this. So if you're promising free Wi-Fi, if you're promising you know, free t- tuition and, and you know, to lower people's bills for energy or water by nationalising it, they realise there's a cost somewhere else than the line. And people didn't trust us. They just didn't trust us to deliver it. Whether they like the policies individually is in many ways irrelevant. It's the same as saying, <laughs> would, you like to, um, would you like a three-course meal? For free. They will, of course, say yes, but the problem is it's not free. Someone has to pay for it. And that is, I think, where we went wrong in the last two elections. We tried to offer too much that people just didn't think we were credible. I mean, how would you respond to that, George? I mean, do you think that that's an accurate assessment or do you think that it is more to do with the, the messaging, the way that the message was projected rather than the message itself? Yeah, I think it is the way the message is projected. I remember in 2017, the, the general election, I think the way we communicated our message was a lot better. I mean, in 2019, when it came to the free broadband policy, which I still think is a great policy, it would have boosted the economy by £59 billion a year and it would have connected towns across the UK. But the problem is, it shouldn't have just come up with, um, on a whim. It came out just out of nowhere during that general election campaign. And I think a policy like that, you need at least two years to get into the minds of people and say why it would be good. And But the problem is it was just too instantly quickly. And I think, I do hope the next Labour leader will defend that policy and try to sell that to the public, maybe repackage it. But the principle of having universal broadband for everybody is a really good idea because it would boost the economy, etc. But, you know, the, the, the message matters. In 2017, we were very clear like when we are talking about abolishing tuition fees, that cut through. When it came to many of those issues, those issues cut through. This time it didn't seem to cut through. Maybe because Brexit was too loud, that was probably maybe a big reason. But it just seemed that we didn't have a coherent vision for the country. And I suppose when you're not trusted on the single big, biggest issue facing the country, that's probably why. But I think we need to look more into how we inspire people and have an overall vision and package that can appeal to people rather than look at where we can retreat on the manifesto. I think we should be building on it rather than retreating. We were suggesting that in five years we were going to not only sort out Brexit, we were going to nationalise everything that had been privatised under Margaret Thatcher and John Major and sort out free Wi-Fi and we were going to have a carbon zero economy. It was just not believed. It was just not credible. I mean, I struggled to believe it looking at it. It's right a manifesto that is perfectly good aspiration, but it's just like a shopping list of aspirations. So rather than saying these are the five key things that will show that in five years' time we can point to and say we did this, this Absolutely. changed the life in this way. We gave a hundred and five things that none of which felt key, none of which felt deliverable, because there were a hundred and five of them in the midst of the biggest economic shock that the UK is going to go through. I agree. A pledge card would be a lot better. Just don't put it on. Just don't put it on an headstone this time. But no, I agree. I think uh, I think a pledge card would be a lot better. Just five, six, seven policies that we want to say to the country: this is our ambition. This is how we're going to win and inspire people over. I think that'd be very good. But I still think if we could deliver that manifesto, I think that'd be absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure. We'll we'll 
for the better. I'm sure we all agree that that platform would have changed the country for the better. It's just the way we package it, and I think I'm just, I'm just going to cut in here, George. I'm just going to I'm just going to I'm just going to cut in here. Can, can I just cut in here, uh, Emma? What were you What were you going to say? Can you if you just, just want to finish off what you were going to say? And that's the point. There's no point. Say, I'm, I mean, I could write in a manifesto that I'm going to give everyone a free unicorn. But the electorate will not believe me, and they would be right because I can't deliver it. We gave them a free unicorn manifesto, and people just rejected it because it wasn't coherent, it wasn't deliverable. What, uh, nothing is wrong with having a certain amount of aspiration for 5, 10, 15 years' time. We tried to do 30 years of policy in a five-year manifesto, and it just made no sense. Sean, what were you, you going to say? I think you were going to say something as well. I was, I was merely going to point out that an example of this is on the Victoria Derbyshire hustings that was on earlier today. They were, all of the candidates were asked to commit to the pledge to make us carbon zero by 2030, which was in our manifesto. Now, the point that Keir Starmer rightly made is that we've lost five years of that decade. We've just lost it because the Tories are in power. So while we can aspire to be that as a Labour Party, we are no longer in a position, because we've lost the election, to promise that. And we need to take that as a starting point and say, what can we realistically do to make things better? What can we realistically do to get to aim for all these things we want to get to? Because we're not going to get to all of them. And it's one of the reasons why I'm not so bothered about what the individual candidates say on individual policies. What I want is the message and the values and the narrative that they are going to suck out, as well as their analysis as to what they feel we've got wrong, what they feel we need to do better, and what they, what they themselves can bring to that to make, improve our fortune going forward. Now, it's a um, good thing that you've brought up the hostings, as this is where uh, we're going to move next. We've had um, a live debate on Newsnight last night. Sean, as you mentioned, uh, there was a, a leadership debate on Victoria Derbyshire earlier today. What do we think of the way that the candidates have performed in the hustings? Do the hustings, in many ways, um, matter to the wider uh, electorate? How do they perceive them? George, uh, I'd like to get your response on, on this first. When it comes to the hustings, I don't know how many people watched Newsnight last night, but it was quite an interesting debate. And when it comes to the live streams of the Labour leadership hustings and deputy leadership hustings, I don't necessarily think that's for the wider electorate. I mean, the wider electorate can see it, but evidently the target audience for all the candidates is the Labour membership or the people who can vote in this leadership contest. I didn't actually watch Victoria Derbyshire this morning. I was supposed to be up at 8 o'clock for an LBC interview, but they cancelled, so I had a tactical nap and missed it. But uh, I've seen the clip one of them here and there, but, uh, you know, um, it was quite interesting. But the, the news note debate, because that's something I think we've all watched here, I thought it was really, really interesting. And again, you could tell the target audience was for the Labour membership because we were focusing on left-wing issues. But I thought I thought it was a very comradely debate, and it should remain a comradely debate. We need to have these discussions in good faith, not just between the leadership candidates, but between you know, fellow members of our party as well. I think that's a really good thing to do. Um, I think there's too much bad faith going on in social media right now, and it's hard to actually have a positive discussion on social media. But you know, when it comes to the leadership candidates, I thought all did okay. Uh, like I said, I thought Keir Starmer before and after. I still don't really understand what his coherent vision for the country is. Lisa Nandy had that thing about tuition fees, you know, saying we sh shouldn't abolish them, and saying we should abolish them. Like I said, again, Emily Thornberry, she was okay, but might not be on the ballot. But I thought Rebecca Long-Bailey did, did very well. But again, I'd look forward to see more of them, as we should see more of them. And um, no doubt, clips of these debates will cut through to the wider public. And when the result is announced on 4th of April, I think that's when we can start showing the country what we're made of, but as long as we unify after. I think that's really important. Uh, Emma, what did you think of the um, the, de the debate and the hostings? What, what have your impression been of how the candidates have performed at them? Um, I didn't think any of them did brilliantly on the night. Um, probably Emily was the best performer, and she is a very good media performer. Um, I 
Lisa had quite an interesting kind of quiet rage take at certain times, I felt. Um, you could feel her kind of intensity coming through. Um, but she did kind of flub that tuition fees thing. That was a bit odd. Um, Keir Starmer kind of dominated a bit, which was slightly awkward given, you know, hi, I'm the bloke. Um, Rebecca, on the other hand, was a bit too quiet, didn't really didn't really come in enough, didn't fight her corner enough. Um, I mean, Comradely is fine, but you also need to, you know, show that you can get in there because one of the things that we need them to demonstrate is that they can take it to the people they're up against debating. Um, I, honestly, the people who were texting me were supporters of all the different candidates and all of them were saying, oh, God, this is boring. <laughs> and I don't be a leader and I don't know what's... Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't see the person that's going to win us the next election, and that's what they need to be out there doing: is showing one hundred percent that they are the person that, at the very least, can get Labour a damn sight closer to winning the next election than we are now. Sean, what were your thoughts on the on the hostings and the debates? I mean, interestingly, I thought um, Lisa and Andy did very well, but I think that's probably illustrative of what's actually going to happen in the course of this contest, which is that the supporters of the individual candidates will think that their candidate has naturally done the best. Um, and it probably means that most people in the Labour membership, unfortunately, have made their minds up in advance of the contest, or pretty much as soon as they saw who was standing, um, rather than, well, I'd say there's probably maybe 10, 15%, maybe slightly more than that, who will look at the individual candidates and the discussions as they go along, um, which is in many ways probably part of the problem. Um, there are, everyone knows that the Labour Party has factions, but it is increasingly factionalised, and, 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 and both wings are responsible for that in many ways. I'm not trying to say that one side is better than the other, but I think part of the problem is that um, neither, both sides um, look at each other and scream. I mean, I saw some people um, from the sort of right of the party having a go at um, Keir Starmer's nationalisation pledges. Now, I class, I think uh, it would be fair to say that I'm classed as on the right of the party, but I saw nothing wrong with nationalisation pledges um, because I don't have a particular issue with nationalisation. I question whether it's a priority in many cases, but I don't necessarily have a problem with it. In the same way, I saw people on the left naturally having a go at um, anything that came out of anybody who was not Rebecca Long-Bailey's mouth. So I think what I would like to see is actually members in the party, and I accept this is probably wishful thinking, having a genuine consideration as to who they think is the better and the best candidate um, for the leadership um, in order to help us um, do better and uh, realistically have a go at beating the Tories rather than voting along um, lines or with a slate, but uh, as I said, that may be wishful thinking. Now, regarding um, policies that you've uh, just mentioned there, what do you think have been the standout policies that the four candidates have proposed? I mean, Becca Long-Bailey, the Green New Deal, um, with Lisa Nandy, uh, more emphasis on communitarian socialism and towns. What one particular policy do you think has, has really come out and impressed you or do you think would be uh, impressive in a manifesto? Uh, Sean, if you'd like to start. I mean, whether it's a policy or not, I'll, I'll say for me it was a priority um, as the thing, um, I'm, I've been a member of the Labour Party since I was 21, but uh, the, the closest I came to ripping my left membership card up was last year and it was because of anti-Semitism, um, because of what I saw in the party as a nastiness and our institutional tolerance of people who we should be institutionally intolerant of, and that is anti-Semites um, anti and, and racists. Um, so for me, the most important and the biggest and most encouraging pledge was that by Lisa Nandy, funny enough, um, with regards to how she was going to tackle it. What pleases me um, is that all four candidates have, for the leadership have agreed to the Board of Deputies' 10 pledges um, and the, the majority of the deputy leadership candidates have. And what I hope is that whatever result we get um, on April the 4th, we can draw a line under what is, for, in my view, the saddest and most embarrassing and disgusting period um, in the Labour Party's long history when anti-Semites and racists 
felt that the Labour Party was their natural home. Uh, and I'm encouraged by the fact that um, in the last couple of days, we, a number have been kicked out. I hope there will be more to follow. Uh, George, what have you thought has been the sort of the, the, the standout policy? Would you say it's the Green New Deal or would you say that it's the commitment to, to fight anti-Semitism? What's particularly struck you as, as good or important? I'm glad that all the leadership candidates have pledged about the, the 10 pledges from the Board of Deputies. Um, I think that is really positive and I think concrete action does need to be taken to stamp out this poison from our party. So, yeah, I do fully agree with Sean uh, when it comes to that, and I'm glad there is consensus from all the candidates when it comes to that. Um, when it comes to other policies from each candidate, like you were saying, Lisa and Andy, I think it was absolutely right to talk about, you know, the importance of rebuilding connection with towns. I've already talked about how Rebecca Long-Bailey and the Green Industrial Revolution could be a white heat of technology movement. I really do genuinely think that can inspire a lot of people. When it comes to Keir Starmer, I'm, I'm glad he has released 10 pledges, but I suppose it's all about trustworthiness, whether people trust him to deliver that, and I genuinely hope if he does become Labour leader, he does. And Emily Thornbury, I can't think of um, a key policy that has um, uh, come out of Emily Thornbury, but I'm glad um, there was a few... <laughs> years ago no, that wasn't a that wasn't a diss that was genuine I, she's been saying the right things but there's been no like, like one standout policy which has been uh, coherently different but what she's saying is good and i do think uh, her article on on trans rights a few days ago how she changed her mind was really really important and i'm glad to see um uh, that was it that the the organization that's been founded uh two days ago which has been endorsed by uh, a few leadership candidates on transphobia, tackling transphobia and uh, removing transphobes from our party, I think was really, really positive because she's changed her mind throughout the years. And I think it's really important that people do change their mind. So that's really impor important, as is the Muslim Council uh, of Britain's 10 pledges to tackle Islamophobia. You know, these, these are all positive yeah, things. And there's consent on these issues. So that's good. Um, Emma, what have you uh, seen that you thought would be a, a particularly good policy or, or a pledge, as we've mentioned, uh, regarding transphobia or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia? What's particularly struck you? What struck me is how backwards this debate is. The idea that we are asking these individuals to come up with policy as if that's how, A, it's done, um, yeah. you know, a leadership candidate says, uh, I believe that we're going to have this number of buses on the street. And that's that's it. That's how party policy is set. And very right. how party policy is developed, how party culture works, how we talk to each other, how we disagree well, how we make sure that we are all a party that are pulling in the same direction, whilst also being a party that are able to say, hang on, I don't agree with that. Can we maybe have a debate and a discussion over it? So, uh, party governance as well. As party that, governance is very important. The whole thing has been. So instead of just going, here's a whole bunch of things I believe as an individual. I'm sorry, we're a collectivist party. We're whole. Our whole credo is collectivism. So what I want to yeah. hear from people much, much more is how they're going to professionalise that collectivism, how they're going to change the way that the party is is structured from top to bottom, in order to end the. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't new, but end the endless jobs for me mates, jobs for me faction, um, and actually promote talent from all parts of the Labour Party, how they're going to empower people at local level to make local decisions without that being, again, factionalised and just only seen through factional lenses, how they're going to make sure that we're a party that actually has a professional approach to running elections, listens to evidence, understands how yeah. to set policy through evidence and evidence-gathering purposes. And I'm just... That's not what we're hearing. Mm. Yeah, totally. Uh, what do we think, looking forward to the future, to after the leadership race has finished, and regardless of candidate, what do you think should be the plan or the uh, tactic to deal with the Conservatives in Parliament. The Conservatives have a, a large majority, so it might be difficult, but what do you think should be the way to go about tackling them in the House of Commons? George, if, uh, if you'd like to start. 
when they've got a big thumping majority, I think there's hardly anything we can really do in Parliament. I think until 2024, the Conservatives can do whatever they want. So what we need to do is change the narrative in the media and change the narrative in the public. So when the Conservatives had a majority in 2015 and they wanted to introduce the tax credit cuts, we managed to shift the debate on that. And we managed to ensure that the pressure from the public, including um, Michelle from Question Time, I think it was a big moment, I think... We need to do that. We need to shift the narrative because that is the only way right now that we can beat the Conservatives in Parliament. And it's a shame it's come to that position. It really, really is. But I think what we need to do next is we need to unite. And that doesn't mean agreeing with the candidate who wins on every single policy ever. Obviously not. But I think the way we go around scrutiny of our own leader, I think, needs to be different. I think it needs to be behind rather than on the front page of newspapers where most of the parliamentary Labour Party attack the leader, there needs to be other ways to do it. It's very good that we can have a disagreement with policy and a way to do it which does not effectively undermine the leadership and the party. Because if we do that again, we will get battered again. Because we saw what a divided party, what the country thinks of a divided party. And, you know, I, I, I do have a preferred candidate. I really do hope Rebecca Long-Bailey wins. But if any of the other leadership candidates win, then... I think we've got to do our best to, you know, not, not, not necessarily agree with them on everything, have fair and good faith discussions to say where they're going wrong. But I think we do need to be unite to win. And that's so important. And then in 2024, if we do win, then we can change the country for the better. Um, Emma, what do you think should be the, the policy of uh, whoever is the next leader when tackling the Conservatives in the House of Commons? The Conservatives are much, much better at us at ruthlessly exploiting our divisions. And we need to be much better. And we, we did for a while over the Brexit stuff. We kind of and, you know, ended up getting 21 of them kicked out of the party. <laughs> but there are going to be divisions in the Conservative Party. You know, there are plenty of ways in Parliament that we can exploit that if we're just a bit cleverer about it. If we constantly go on this I-won't-talk-to-Tories jag then you won't ever convince the Tories to split amongst themselves and try to talk them over to your way of thinking on certain issues. So we need to be talking to the Tories that are disconcerted by Boris, that are disconcerted by hard Brexit, that are disconcerted by the way that he's running number 10 as a, a complete fiefdom, and actually make sure that we are stirring those divisions within them. Um, there's plenty that can be done in Parliament that way to make sure that we weaken the Tory party. Sean, what's your response? What do you think that uh, whoever is leader can do to tackle the Conservatives in the House of Commons? It's not just about the leader, is it? It, it no. needs to be done uh, uh, by all of our MPs, all 205 of them, is it? Disastrously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, yeah, this is something that, that needs to happen throughout the party, we, but the leader can set the tone of hey, come talk to us, we're the reasonable guys. You know, and if we set the tone of being the reasonable, common sense, sensible people on the side of Britain um, against the blustering, autocratic um, Boris, who, you know, if you're at outs with Boris, you're never getting back in. He's proved that today in the reshuffle. So I think there are going to be plenty of Tories with their nose out of joint who'd be quite happy to sit and work with the Pinch Committee, you know, work with us on reports, work with us on private members' bills. There, you know, there are ways in to use parliamentary process to ensure that Labour, you know, if you look at, look at the work that Stella Creasy's done, for example, in opposition. Stella Creasy has changed laws from the backbenches. Now, she'd rather be in, in Parliament, in government. We all would. But she hasn't taken that time and gone, well, there's nothing we can do. She's taken that time and she's changed laws. And she's done that by building coalitions with those Tories who are movable and by opposing those Tories who aren't and by ruthlessly exposing those divisions. Would you agree with that, Sean? What, what do you think of the, of, of the, the tactic, perhaps, that the, the leadership, whoever they are, should take uh, regarding the Conservatives? Well, I'd like them to help me get re-elected, potentially, in, uh, in May, first off. Um, that would be very helpful. Um, but the next thing I'd like is... I, I think we've now got a, an opportunity that we haven't had for a number of years be, um, because of the fact that there is such a huge Conservative majority to go out and proper, 
actually engage with people. I mean, we're not going to win many battles in Westminster, are we? We're not going to. Not, um, it, that's just not realistic anymore. What we can do is we can go and ask people why they didn't vote for us. We can go out and engage in... And it, it follows... If we look back to 1987, when Neil Kinnock lost, um, yeah, and it was our third successive electoral defeat, this being our fourth... Um, they launched what was called Labour Listens, and you know the introduction to that um, when it was launched um, was to read it for you. There is a wide recognition that it cannot be shrugged off as a temporary setback. We won barely one in three votes, and in large areas of England, we trailed in as outsiders. For too many people, Labour simply lacked ex appeal. Was it policy or image, credibility or leadership? It was all of these in different measures for different people. I think that's relevant now, um, and I think we need to go out um, and find out what it is that put people off, why people wouldn't vote for us, um, why people did still vote for us, so that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and we've got a fantastic opportunity to do that over the next few years. It's probably only if we can say there's any silver lining to what happened, is that we have an opportunity to reset as a party. Um, and to look to go forward and say what sort of party do we want to be what sort of party in government do we want to be um, and that would be my hope for any leader going forward and it's one of the reasons as I said earlier I'm not expecting too much in terms of individual policy what I want is a narrative and analysis and some values to be spelled out that we can all get behind well we're coming towards the end of the podcast it's been great speaking uh, to all three of you and I'd like to ask one uh, final question get your reaction to it Emma uh, mentioned it a little while ago there's been a reshuffle today and it's been a bit more um, action packed than I think a lot of people were expecting it to be what are our thoughts on the reshuffle do you think that this is a, a sign that the Prime Minister has gone too far perhaps or, or what what do we think Anyone can start if they'd like to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think Boris is now solely in charge of everything, um, for good or for evil. He owns whatever's going to happen now, and um, particularly having taken over the Treasury basically wholesale. Um, <coughs> so if there's success, he'll own success. But very few governments have unalloyed success for a long period of time. As I think George mentioned earlier, we are due another recession. Um, we are about to make a major change to our economy. Um, I obviously think that's going to be a bad thing. Other people think it's going to be a good thing, but I don't think anybody thinks it's going to be an easy, simple, unbumpy thing. Um, so those bumps are going to be felt by Boris. And the thing about Boris is he really doesn't like being unpopular. And he's, you know, I can't think of a prime minister who doesn't leave government more unpopular than they came to it. Um, and so his taking full ownership of all that's going to happen is a huge risk for his ego. And the man is, you know, nothing if not ego-driven. George, what, what are your thoughts on the reshuffle? How do you think it uh, will impact the government or impact the, the perception of the government by the public? Emma's right. Emma is right. Um, he, he just controls it all now. He is, uh, it's part of the pun, taking back control over government. And like like Emma says, he's got to own the mistakes that will happen over the next four years. And when this recession does happen, and it probably will happen, it's very likely to happen. Then uh, you know that will impact if um, if there is a strong opposition to you know, set the narrative around that. But, you know, he's just got to do, he's got to do what he has to do. Um, and the Labour Party's role now is to beat him at every single election possible from the local elections, etc., etc. But um, it's going to be a bumpy four years. And those who believe in progressive politics is going to be very difficult at times. But what we need to do now is build a movement and a coalition of members and voters and trade unionists all together just to take on Boris Johnson at every possible angle. And, um, you know, it's got to be done because in four years' time, we can't have another five years of Conservative rule. So hopefully whatever happens after this leadership contest, we unite together, we build that movement and, they win, and we win in 2024. Sean, what are your thoughts on the reshuffle? It's, uh, 
the Sun King at his zenith, isn't it? It's uh, the state is me, and here's the state. Uh, I mean, he's he's never going to have a better opportunity to set the government up in his image and to his liking. And I think what we need to bear in mind is that um, I would expect quite a lot of pork barrelling going forward um, in terms of lots of money being thrown at Northern seats, uh, which I've just recently put in a Conservative MP, um, which will bring with it fresh challenges for us as a party in terms of how we uh, can try to win those seats back. Well, I think that you've all um, given excellent analysis on this question and uh, on the previous questions I've asked. So uh, thank you for joining me uh, in this discussion. It's been uh, great speaking to you all. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. Uh, if you would like to subscribe, you can do on iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker and YouTube. If you'd like to follow the podcast, you can do at Debated Podcast on Twitter and like us at the Debated Podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to email us about the podcast, comments regarding this or any other episode, then you can do at the Debated Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.